0: Wait a second, this isn't your grandma's cancer show. Not your grandma's cancer show. I'm Tatum Duroc and today we are talking about chronic cancer. Cancer. And one of our guests today, Lucy, described it as a cancer that doesn't fit into cancer boxes. We're going to ask her more about that a little bit later. And one of the reasons that it doesn't fit so neatly into those cancer boxes might be because there's a real array of experiences from needing treatment as soon as you're diagnosed to waiting for years and years and years, watching and waiting till the levels rise and you're sick enough to be treated to times when the chronic cancer is undetectable, but you still know there is treatment up ahead. So I'm really delighted to have with me David, Lucy and Kerry um, to share their experiences of what it's been like having a chronic cancer and some of the things that have helped them navigate all the uncertainty that goes with it. So hi, David. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Hello, welcome.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I just wanted to ask um, what was going on in your life when you were diagnosed?
1: Um, lots of things were going on in my life. Everything was going okay. You know, I, I was doing relatively well at work and I've got two small kids, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. everything sort of felt like it was going in the right direction, really. Um, yeah, I'd just done my. Uh, head teacher qualification and was about to have an interview to, to become a head teacher of a primary school, but I didn't get to go to that interview because I ended up in hospital. So um, there was lots of stuff happening in yeah. my life at that moment of, of diagnosis. Yeah.
0: And so that sounds really sudden. What brought you into the hospital mm. that day?
1: Yeah, it was very, very sudden. Um, I'd had about two months of back pain, um, which just got worse and worse, wouldn't go away. And I had mm-hmm. lots of, you know, osteopathy and physio and all that. And I, tr- I tried everything. And in the end, my osteopath, I think it was, and and maybe a colleague said to me, why don't you get an MRI scan? And it was a long wait in the NHS. So I just thought I'm going to pay for an MRI scan. I found a a clinic in Waterloo in in London and um, went there on a Sunday and they scanned me. And then three days later, when I was sitting at work at my laptop doing something, um, I got the report through. And that was a a horrible moment because it sort of, you know, I just received it while I was at work cold with no, no kind of context. And it... It pretty much just said, um, your T1 vertebra has collapsed, go to hospital, ASAP. Um, and so th- I went home that night and was all in a bit of a state of shock, really. Um, and I decided I'd go into the A&E the next morning because I just thought if I get in there early, so I got up at sort of 4.30 in the morning, didn't really sleep all night. And got a taxi down to King's Hospital, which was only a few minutes away from my house. So I was in in A&E by 5am and I didn't leave hospital for two weeks. Um,
0: I mean, that's such, you know, really being ripped out of your life and into this completely different world with no sort of build up to it. And when you saw Mm -hmm. that result saying that it collapsed, did you you know what that meant um, when it said? okay so when you got to the hospital there was that second impact of hearing the diagnosis and can yeah you- i
1: didn't get the diagnosis for about 10 days after i'd been in hospital it took a while um i didn't know what it meant to have a collapsed first break but the other helpfully on the report it listed a series of possible conditions um like osteoporosis uh i think they said TB or something like that as well, like could have had an infection in the bone, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And myeloma was mentioned, which is what I have. And I, I looked at the list and I thought, well, I haven't got osteoporosis, I've not had TB, and I sort of worked, I've never heard of that one, you know, I've never heard of that one. I, I think it's myeloma. I sort of just thought, I bet it's that. And I googled myeloma at that point and I thought, hmm, I think you know th- this could be it. And and anyway, I yeah, so I had no idea. And then in hospital, I showed them the the picture from the MRI scan, and they at that point when they saw the image, suddenly I was in the neuro ward, and that's where I was, you know. Um, and so, yeah, by the time I got the diagnosis, they'd already sort of ruled out various other things. And I'd spoken to a clinical nurse specialist who'd been sent down to chat to me, who'd mentioned myeloma. Um, and I was thinking, okay, it's all heading this way. Um, and then it was the, the, the kind of moment of diagnosis was almost accidental because I was going for a walk from my from my um, bed in my you know on the hospital ward I thought I'm gonna go for a little walk and I walked past the space where all the doctors and nurses kind of gather around the computers and as I sort of walked past it I, I just heard I, I, I at the corner of my eye I saw the consultant who'd been to see me earlier in the week and I heard him chatting to a nurse and, and I heard him saying well oh, my loma at 44 that's a bit that's a bit harsh isn't it and I just thought, oh, I think they're talking about me. And I sort of backed away, and I just listened. I listened to them talk about it, and I thought, okay, that's me. That's my diagnosis. That's it. Then they came around the corner and saw me and said, "Oh, we're looking for you." And I said, "Yeah, I know, I know." And we went back to my my room, and um we spoke about it at that point. And it, that's what they said. So, um yeah, they told me my light chains were very high, and I, that's what it was. So, yeah, that-, that was a
0: yeah. I, I, you know, I was about to ask the question, like, what impact was that on you hearing it in that way? Um,
1: well, it was traumatizing. It was, you know, it's horrible. And you just sort of, it's like a slightly out of body experience. You're listening to people talking about you and you're thinking, this doesn't add up. This doesn't make sense. But okay, I take their word for it. Yeah. Um And by the point they told me, I've been in hospital for nearly two weeks and I'd had lots of conversations with people, I knew something was coming. So, you know, the shock kind of came in increments, I suppose, over those weeks. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and I'd say that it was the beginning of a very, it was exactly a year ago, actually, pretty much today that I got that diagnosis. So,
0: What was your treatment protocol from that point?
1: Um, When I finally got out of hospital, once they decided my spine was stable and I had radiotherapy on my spine, which sorted that out. And then I I, I was into four months of initial induction therapy, which is immunotherapy and chemotherapy for four months every week and plus pills every day, four months of that. And then then that sort of ended in July and I had a couple of months off of nothing, which, which was great in a way because I suddenly felt okay again mm. um, just not dragged down by by treatment and then I had a stem cell transplant in November last year which was which was hard <laughs> um, n- yeah hard certain phases of it were very hard and other parts of it were easier than I thought they were going to be um, then I came out of the stem cell transplant and then I had two more months of consolidation treatment which is exactly the same as the four months i had at the beginning two more months of it to consolidate the um stem cell transplant and i just finished that last week in fact and i had a bone marrow biopsy last wednesday and i'm getting the results of that tomorrow so (sighs) it's all happening
0: all going on and how are you feeling in this waiting period now
1: i'm feeling the anxiety is building as tomorrow approaches you know um yeah, I didn't enjoy the two months of consolidation treatment because I felt like I'd really been through it all with the stem cell transplant. I thought, OK, I've climbed that mountain. I'm over that. Oh, God, I've got to go back into hospital every week now to the, the chemo day unit, which really was a place of trauma for me. You know, when I first started going in there, the beginning, when I was first diagnosed, I, I really couldn't process that. And I found it extremely difficult. So going back there was hard, um, not as hard as originally, but it was hard. Um And so what I'm feeling now is I'm glad that it's all out of the way, but I just want to get some more out of the way now. Um, and then, and then whatever happens tomorrow, I'll be going on to a maintenance drug called lenalidomide, um, which is hard to say. Um, and that's a, a daily pill. So really it's just about, you know, and that's the promised land, you know, that's what I've been looking looking forward to really for a whole year, thinking, OK, just get through this, get on the maintenance, carry on with life.
0: So with that drug that's very hard to pronounce, um, that is to keep your levels stable so you wouldn't have to go through more of the treatment that you've just been through
1: yeah 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 myeloma is a relapsing remitting illness so it comes and goes um and the longer you can remain in remission the better Mm -hmm. um because then you don't have to go through more intense treatments like what i've just been through so the lenalidomide is designed to keep you in remission for as long as possible and that length of time varies talking about uncertainty and things the length of time varies some people get not much time like a year or whatever other people I've spoken to people have been on it for sort of 10 years still going so the fact is we just don't know and no, nobody can tell me and none of the none of the medical people will ever put a number on it so you just take it you just take the drug and keep going
0: yeah and and that's huge levels of uncertainty there's a massive difference between one year and a decade um yeah. and and so you know it I can really hear you know you've you've described things as you know sort of being kind of a mountain and mm. and that time that you had after I, I saw the relief even come over your face when you had that little mm. bit of time before the stem cell how how has this been emotionally for you how has this time so, impacted you
1: it's been it's been difficult for me i mean i'm quite an emotional person i suppose you know um i feel i'm i feel a lot of things and i'm not someone who's in any way able to compartmentalize and sort of shut down you know just think i'm just not going to feel that that doesn't happen for me you know i cannot do that um and so it was extremely difficult for me and everybody around me i'd say um yeah i was in a huge trauma for a long time probably most of last year you know and i I, I wouldn't say I fell apart because I kept going. A lot of people kept saying to me, you seem to be doing really well. And I'm thinking, yeah, but I know I'm at work, but actually every hour I go into the toilet and I cry for 10 minutes or five minutes. You know, I do that every hour at work. Um, and I I um, would go home from work and sort of just disappear to my room and, and really try and get myself together, you know, and not really interact with the kids. And, and yeah, I'd say I felt like, the kind of bottom of the form out of my life, really. Yeah. And I, I was very lost, very, very upset, um, at times very, very distressed, unable to kind of compute it and process it. Um, really? It's just such a sudden change, you know. So, and also pretty angry as well. Um, and, nowhere really to go with those feelings you know not much outlet even seeing a counselor at the hospital didn't really it helps but it doesn't remove the feeling It can feel
0: really isolating
1: Mm. oh yeah yeah you're sort of in your own life like you always were but you're also sort of cut out of it and sort of pushed off track you're sort of almost next to your life
0: yeah like this yeah,
1: thinking, I remember that that's not where I am.
0: this derailing of yeah. your life, yeah, and there's a whole different experience, and something about you is still being back at work, mm-hmm. you know, sort of in the normality of a day, and yet everything is totally different. One of the images that we sometimes mm-hmm. use um at Shine is of a um iceberg. And, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of at the top, people are seeing that tiny little bit sticking out. And, you know, there's the, they're sort of looking and like, oh, oh, you seem to be doing fine. And yet not really knowing that there's this huge, jagged monster of an iceberg underneath the water. Um, And that image just really came into my mind as you were talking. Um, And that's, Mm -hmm. it's hard not to be seen for like all of you you know so um where did you where did you end up going with those feelings where where have you um, sort of sought some understanding or
1: outlet well, a few places um i had a therapist that i used to see years ago and i hadn't seen him for a, a few years but i got back in touch with him that was quite useful because he knows me um so it was just sort of like okay this is down situation and he knows how i feel about things in life and that was good but equally probably the probably the, the best things i did were um i've built a network of people around me who have myeloma and who are experienced as patients um i contacted myeloma uk and i went on there i signed up to their 50s and under support group because myeloma generally affects people who are older yeah so 50s and under support groups useful because they're all, we're all People there are sort of late thirties upwards. Um, and they also have a WhatsApp group and I've met some people on that. When I, when I joined the WhatsApp group, a few people said, if you want to chat, get in touch. And so I did, and I've talked to all of them. And in fact, a few of them live in London, and I've met them, been out for drinks with them, for coffee with them. Um, I've got a friend from the Myeloma Support Forum. He lives down in Devon, Rich, and I've met up with him. Been down to Devon to see him. We speak every week, Rich and I. Um, he was the same age as me when he was diagnosed. He's now. A four or five years older than me um, I think and um, through also social media I found people I found a a lady in the Midlands called Michelle and I just found her on Instagram and she um, she's a bit older than me about 10 years and she was uh, just on Instagram looking like she was having a nice life but talking about myeloma so I sent her a message and we arranged to speak and she pretty much saved my life for that year because she spoke to me I would say every day wow Six months.
2: oh that's she lovely just, just,
1: every day every day um it's amazing so yeah people people really um and through social media I found other people and I, a, a man called Scott who lives just up the road from me in, in London he was on he was on Instagram talking about my having myeloma and I saw that he lived near me Elephant and Castle and I thought oh that's that's literally five minutes from from where I live so I just sent him a message and we've met up a few times him and his husband have been around for lunch you know so really what I've done is I've connected I've got some also some friends in America that I've connected with who I also found on found one on Facebook and one on Instagram just positive stories of people living with it really
0: Yeah, I can really, and even hearing you talk about that, like Mm -hmm. what a lift when you talked about Michelle calling you. And I mean, you you said she saved your life like that, being able to talk to someone who understands, you know, maybe they're in a slightly different place, but who... Mm -hmm gets what you're going through is is massive i'd love to bring lucy into the conversation here um lucy how has it been hearing david talk
3: um yeah lots of um lots of sort of moments that i can relate to as well you know that um sort of feeling as if someone's scribbled all over your life script and not really sure sure what the future holds initially um my diagnosis came out of the blue as well. I'd forgotten my lunch one day and popped home to grab it. And it was at that moment the GP called to say, you need to come in and see me today. <laughs> so I know what that feels like. Yeah. So
0: so you had just gone for a, a regular GP visit?
3: Um, she called me in because I'd had a blood test. Okay. Hey. Just had a routine blood test and it was picked up there.
0: Yeah. And how were you feeling at that point?
3: I didn't really take it in at that moment. I was in a rush. I had to go back to work. I remember speaking to a colleague in by the filing cabinets and saying, I've got to leave work a bit early today because I need to go and see the GP. She reckons I've got leukemia. Well, oh, that can't be true.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, if there's ever a reason to get out of work, right? Like, what? that should be it, you know? <laughs> I I was at work when I found out as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I asked to leave. <laughs> and when they said why, I was like, I got cancer. Um, and yeah, like, I was like, oh, that's like, today was probably the best day ever for using that <laughs> as, a, as a reason to, to get out of work. So. But you were there, kind of thinking it can't be right that you know maybe they've made a
3: mistake or yeah, it yeah, makes sense. It made no sense whatsoever. I was I was thirty eight, and I'm an occupational therapist. I was working in the NHS, um, and we were in the process of remortgaging our house. I was also thinking about reducing my hours and going into private practice, and yeah. all that went by the wayside.
0: What was your first interaction with the doctors? Like, what did they tell you about your condition?
3: When I saw my GP, she was very sort of nonchalant about it really and just said oh you know it's it's one of those things it's very slow growing you'd be very lucky if you need treatment in the next 10 years you might never need treatment at all we're just gonna monitor you you know there's nothing to worry about you need to just get on with things but we'll refer you to the hospital and you'll be seen in a couple of weeks um so my head was spinning <laughs> And how did you
0: take that information? I, I mean, I can imagine that she maybe thought she was being reassuring. What was the impact on you of hearing it put like that?
3: Well, I was still, she'd she been poking and prodding me, so I was still getting dressed behind the curtain as she said that. And I, I remembered to say, oh, okay, that's fine, and toddled off home. And I remember I got home. washing machine was bleefing, so i was unloading that and my husband said oh how'd you get on i said oh they reckon i've got leukemia and it it didn't sink in didn't Mm -hmm. sink in
0: (laughs) so did she sort of do you think in that moment that she almost gave you a template to kind of downplay it
3: i think what it was was because i was so young um like david my my chronic lymphocytic leukemia. The average age of diagnosis is seventy, so I didn't I didn't fit the mold, and mm. I think everybody just thought I was a bit of an anomaly. And I was reasonably healthy at the time. I had a one swollen lymph node in my groin, and apart from slightly elevated bloods, there was nothing else going on. So I think everybody just thought this was going to be a real slow burn, um, and also. She, I don't think she'd ever come across it before either. Um, so I don't think she was that well, well-versed well in it, yeah. which is often the case.
0: I mean, just as an off-the-cuff comment as you're on the other side of the curtain getting changed. Yes. And then almost I see that being mirrored when your husband asked you later, how did it go? Almost coming yes. out, like almost in the a very similar kind of way. Was there a moment when the impact hit you or do you feel like there was a long time that you were sort of swatting it away and kind of, you know, maybe doing a
3: similar kind of thing with it, minimising it a bit? I think the impact came when I I Googled it. Mm. Because, of course, I looked at all the out-of-date research that was on there and um, I thought I was going to be dead in five years. Which wasn't true at all, but it was out of date research. So that 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 hit me. Yeah. Um And did you tell people in your life? No, no, not really. I only told people very close to me. I've got got a vulnerable family member who wouldn't have understood and it would have distressed her greatly on a daily basis, um to know that. Um and I was finding it difficult to get my head round um, the fact that I've been diagnosed with cancer, but they weren't going to do anything about it. Right, I was going on watch and wait. Um, so if I couldn't get my head round it, how was anyone else going to understand? Yeah.
0: Um,
3: and I think I think people are conditioned really to equate cancer with treatment and looking ill. And I I didn't, and I I felt a fraud. Um, I was saying oh, I've got cancer but they're not doing anything about it and I'm okay and it didn't it didn't make sense. Because um, everything
0: that you know we're told is like early diagnosis and get checked out all the posters all the things are like you know if it's caught early and yeah it's hard to get your head around you have a diagnosis they know it's there but they're not going to do anything. Um, yeah. So. Was it a process then of waiting till you're sick before then getting treatment?
3: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. All all the while, I could I could manage the symptoms, and it you know I could get on with life, and they weren't getting in the way. Um, and although my numbers were steadily climbing, they weren't too worried. They were more about the symptoms and the impact on my life. So what were some of the symptoms? Um, Fatigue was massive. Um, I had swollen lymph nodes externally and internally. Um, Lots of bruising, anemia. Um, That was pretty much, oh, and I had an enlarged spleen as well. Um, So that was very uncomfortable and that affected my appetite. So I lost a lot of weight as well.
0: And so you're looking at these changes in your body, knowing what's causing them, and yet knowing that you're going to have to wait even longer to get treatment to... How how long was that whole process? Like, that um, you were living me, with that?
3: Uh, two years um, before I needed treatment. I mean, some people go... 10 years before needing it so I never need it at all. it goes that slowly. Um, but yeah I was two years.
0: And did you access any um, cancer support during that time?
3: I stumbled across an online forum um, via health unlocked run by the CLL Association and that was my main source of education really and support. Um, it's a secure group, um, the CLL Association, a UK-based charity, but it's a worldwide forum. So hearing about um, research that was going on in America and Australia um, before it had arrived in the UK, you know, it was really helpful. So did and you, think being-
0: you felt like you were sort of getting really educated on your condition through that? Or was it more kind of an emotional connection?
3: It was education more than anything. I really felt that knowledge was power, you know, get to know your enemy and all that. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And then, so, and then after two years, you had treatment. And how long
3: was that treatment? Um, The treatment was lasted for six months. I had a combination of immunotherapy and chemotherapy.
0: And are you on any kind of maintenance like David? Um, Or do you, how does the kind of the rhythm of that continue forward? Or is it just a completely blank slate in terms of um, whether it it will relapse or?
3: Yeah, it's a blank slate. It's finished. um, Just waiting for it to come back, I suppose. (laughs) Which is, it's very...
0: um, you know, I, th- I think there is like such a, you know, you-, you had mentioned to me in the previous conversation about cancer boxes. And there is this, you know, box of um, going through treatment and then recovery, end of treatment. And people seem to understand that they're like in it, you yeah. know, the- people seem to rally around and then they're like, OK, when's the end of treatment? And sometimes when treatment is ongoing, it's, you know, what you were saying about like it not being really understood or... um or, yeah, watching and waiting, people are quite confused about. Um, yes. And, you know, but at the same time, it's not necessarily quite the same as incurable because it's there's a management to, that's happening. So, yeah. yeah. So what has it been like now to kind of um, talk a bit more about you know what's been going on with you and accessing or you know i know that you came along to one of the shine chronic support um chronic cancer groups how has that been um
3: that that's been good um i'm not used to talking about it i'm not used to being with people um who have cancer either i haven't unlike david i haven't haven't looked for that I suppose I've just tried to get my head down and get on with things, really. Um, I think I appear outwardly normal and life just carries on, but no one really sees the emotional stress that, that goes along with it, really. Um, I mean, leading up to treatment, I was very anemic, so I would get out of breath climbing stairs um, and I would have to recover before I rang my patient's doorbell. Um, that kind of thing um, I coached people in fatigue management but I never took any notice of the advice that I was giving I didn't think it applied to me um, I think I've got used to painting on a smile mm. um, and I've got I did it before treatment and I've just carried on really um, I definitely compartmentalised my life into work and home um, I've got a new job now um, in a completely different service, and only my boss knows. Um, and I wanted, I just wanted to be me, and it, I saw it as an opportunity to be me without any label. Um, but, and it's good, it gives me the rest, a bit of respite, really, because I just focus on work when I'm there, you know. And if the days I come in and, and I'm fatigued and I look rubbish, No one's going to comment and relate it to, oh, it's your leukaemia. You know, it's it's just they don't know any of that. But, I mean, it can be lonely at times, and there's definitely a part of me that I'm obviously holding back, and I have to sometimes really watch what I say. Um, COVID nearly outed me as well Mm. um, when I was having to shield. Um, So, Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm so glad that you're here with us today sharing and talking and that, you know, you found some other people in the in the Shine group that you can also talk to because it is, you know, I, I can totally hear that thing of there's a certain freedom of being at work and sort of being able to compartmentalize and not have it necessarily brought up in the middle of the day. But at the same time, I can really hear that you know, what you were saying, that it can be lonely as well. Mm. And watching what you say and even having to second guess yourself and having people that you can just be completely yourself. They can see the whole iceberg above and below um, can be, um, you know, so unifying um and i'd love to bring kerry in and kerry i've seen you nodding at several points while david and lucy have been talking so how has it been for you hearing hearing from them
2: yes i always find it um really insightful listening to other people's experiences and so much of it resonates so certainly what um what they were both saying about being sort of ripped out of your professional life, particularly when things are going well. Um, and also the importance of accessing the right support for you. Mm. And it's a balance between sort of reaching out, connecting, but also not broadcasting it. And I think it's different for for each person. I think that's, yeah, that's very true. And so my life was... Um, yeah, professionally, my life was was going very well. Um, so shortly before my cancer was discovered, I just sketched out a five-year plan for my future. Um, I planned to study for um, a PhD part-time and teach part-time. Um, I was an English teacher teaching English as a foreign language in a university. Um, I had three job offers, which was great. The work was uh, mostly contractual. I also had uh, an invitation to apply for a fourth job. So I was hate-hunted. Nice. But, um, <laughs> and I had found a supervisor for my thesis. Um, and So I'd chosen something I wanted to explore, and I'd found the person with the expertise to, to supervise it. Um, personally, my life was, you know, I had a great group of friends, um, but I was recently single, and I was 39, and I was wanting to start a family, And when you're in that position, you can't help but notice everywhere you look, you see pregnant women and happy families. And it's just like they're suddenly really, really visible. But I was still hopeful of meeting a partner and having children. It was possible. Um, But cancer just took, yeah, took that away. How did you find um, out? um, I went for a routine smear um and for reasons to do with my health insurance it happened to be with the gynaecologist Um, and it was my first appointment with her and she was incredibly thorough she um she, uh, she checked my breasts she gave me a pelvic exam she took the sample for the cervical cancer screening and she also gave me um an internal ultrasound and she found a large cyst on one of my ovaries. And everything happened really fast. She was very, very, very good. Um, She ordered tests for, she ordered blood tests and scans. And then when when my tumor markers were elevated, she advanced the scans. She phoned hospital to advance them saying, this is urgent. So I went from needing to lose one ovary Um, and thinking it hadn't spread, to having um, a six-hour operation where I was diagnosed with advanced ovarian cancer. Um, And they removed all my reproductive organs, uh, part of my bowel appendix. It was was a really very extensive operation. Um, And then scans revealed some small nodules in my lungs, which placed me in the stage four category, requiring months of chemo targeted therapy Um, and what is just the brutality of it it's a cancer, it's extremely rare under 40, it's kind of rare not ultra rare I've met many different uh, people with different types of cancer but it was, there's no screening test for it and the cervical cancer screening is for cervical cancer, it's not for any others. Um and I was where well, I was in that position um of wanting to have children and then this walking into the hospital with my fertility and then this just sudden removal. It 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 was yeah brutal is the, the best way to describe it. Um I woke up and I was in instant surgical menopause and just really not knowing how long I was going to live um That was five years ago it was uh, may 2018 and the whole relentlessness of it is just it's really exhausting it's been the hardest five years of my life and i've been on this um treatment treadmill i had in total i've had 15 months of chemo i've had six to seven different types of therapy i'm currently on my third line treatment Um, I have my tumor markers tested every three weeks. I have a CT scan every 12 weeks. And after recurrence or progression, or even just a regular scan, sometimes all I can do is just to come home, crawl into bed and cuddle my teddy. And that's the only thing that just makes me feel okay. And in terms of the, the physical effects, um, I can't always rely on my body from day to day with my current treatment um, I have a week where I I really can't do much at all then I have a moderate week and then I have like a reasonable week Um, but it's really the cumulative effect and the thing about chronic cancer is like how can your body recover if you're always on treatment you've just got this residual level of fatigue and side effects and I use a weekly planner to manage my energy. That's the best seems to work best for me. I need to think about the whole week. Um, and I just what I've kind of developed is like an inkling about the balance of activities, about what I can do and what what needs to be done, what's essential. Um but there's still there's still a huge amount of uncertainty. Like and I just for me it's like these these hurdles. Um like how, you know, will this treatment work? How long will it work for? But I try and remind myself that sometimes, within uncertainty, there there can be the possibility of a future treatment. So in 2021, I I had the crushing certainty that my second line treatment had failed. But I was eligible for a trial, and I happened to be randomised to an experimental treatment, which I'm still on, Um, and it's turned out to be more effective and less toxic, although it does have side effects. Um, So there are are lots of difficult things that I face, particularly I find it hard when I encounter women with the same disease and the stage who stayed in remission after their first-line treatment. Um, and I'm happened to be about um, or it happens to be every so often. And I um, when it happened a year ago, I wrote I wrote in my journal, I just wrote if only I could experience that nervous waiting for scan scan results once a year, you know, I could be living a different life, I could be making plans to adopt. And then my mind starts up this, you know, this regret, there's anger, there's frustration. That that's not going to be me. That I'm always going to be on treatment, and it's so unfair. It's beyond my beyond my control. Because um, I did after my first line treatment, I went into remission. Many women do with advanced ovarian cancer, but the recurrence rate is quite high, and so that's that's quite hard. That that option of a cure is gone and i really have to pull myself back mentally and i sometimes i think after this happened i went and sat in the park and um i just had to remind myself okay that's gone but i'm on a trial and maybe with this new treatment i'll be i'll be part of a group whose experimental treatment transforms the odds for women in
0: my situation there's (laughs) so much in what you've what you've expressed and thank you so much for sharing that because the relentlessness and you know one of the things that um we often hear is that sometimes the hardest time for people is the end of treatment because that's the the time when they're like processing everything that's happened but almost how do you have the energy to process when things are continual like you were saying the the waiting for results the is so so a part of your life that to try and sort of weave some time in there for you to support you as you're going through that and i i loved what you said that you know in uncertainty you've been able to find these like little bits of possibility um, (laughs) that it sounds like they sustain you and and speaking of kind of sustaining David how has it been hearing from Lucy and Kerry I know all of your experiences are so different were the parts that you related to
1: yeah yeah loads that i related to definitely um especially the whole the whole thing about uncertainty and uh like lucy said i, I think about it's like someone scribbled all over the the script of your life and and that's sort of what i felt um and the same with with what carrie said i think about you know you're making plans for whatever to have kids or whatever your plans are and that is the script of your life and the story you're sort of writing and telling yourself and then suddenly something's come into it which kind of um completely destroys that script that you you've got yeah and that story um and you then have to sort of try and rebuild something new and rebuild a new narrative somehow um so I relate to all that and the uncertainty that we're all in in, in different ways about how long treatment will last how long it will be before you need more treatment suddenly you you feel like I personally feel like it's hard to plan the future because you can't predict anymore how long it's gonna be or what's what you're gonna to have to deal with, what hurdles you're gonna to have to jump over. So yeah, just that feeling of loss of what was. Yeah. And now where you're at is a new situation that you have to deal with. Um
0: yeah, it's really so. layers of grief, isn't it? Like the loss of yeah. the life that you were having and that you expected to have. And mm-hmm. um I know that um when me and Kerry spoke before like that loss of the opportunity to have a child um and the loss of the child that you thought you were going to have um you know is those griefs are not necessarily always perceived by people around us they're not necessarily seeing that and so having a space where you can acknowledge like actually this is a big thing that this derailing and no one puts this in their life plan it is an and the anger that i think you know several of you have expressed at different points if there's mm-hmm. someone listening to this that also has a chronic cancer and is there something that you wish that you had done sooner and in, in terms of finding support or something that just really helped you that you would want to share with someone else like if you could go back to yourself a couple of years ago and or a year ago and sort of whisper a bit of advice is there anything that you would want to share and let's start with um David and then we'll go around to Lucy and then Carrie.
1: there's nothing that I could say to myself you know that I should do differently because I didn't feel I was in a position to do things any differently at the point I was just surviving but you know the thing which helped me is other people connecting mm. to other people who have it and also my family and friends but really building a network of people in the same or a similar situation who could tell me a new story like this, like I was just saying, some people who could help me rebuild a sense of my, my future and what it might be like. And that's what got me through 100%. That's what that's what helped.
0: Thank you, David. And Lucy, do you have something that?
3: I consider myself quite fortunate that I had time to learn about my CLL and turn to learn about the symptoms and the treatments that were available to me compared to someone who had an acute cancer, all that David, he almost came on very suddenly. I felt empowered by the knowledge I was able to gain from the forums that I went on, definitely. Mm -hmm. Um, And that definitely helped me feel more in partnership with my consultant when the time came for treatment.
0: Lovely. Thank you, Lucy. And Kerry, is there something you'd like to share?
2: Mm, yes. Yeah, I'd say that whatever you're feeling is completely understandable and legitimate, given what's happened to you. However, there's can be this chasm between your life and the lives of people around you, and even the ones who love you the most. And the most helpful thing I've found is just carving out space for myself, for people who get it, and that connection. And it could be through reading memoirs, a blog, um, online support groups, listening to podcasts. And you've just got that connection, that that acknowledgement, people who get it.
0: Yeah, and I know that you um, you were telling me about a quote that you read. Um, I can't remember the name of the person's
2: um, book, but do you have it? This is a quote from Kate Bowler, and she wrote a wonderful memoir called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. And when talking about people with chronic illness, she says we're not problems to be solved we're just people to be loved
0: ah oh, thank you and i know that really that the quote really resonated with you thank you to all of you for your time and It's just been an absolute pleasure to meet you all. And thank you, as always, to Radio Facilities for sponsoring our podcast. And if you have a chronic cancer, we do have a group that meets up. I think it's like once a quarter. Contact us at shinecancersupport.org and find out more. Till next time. Bye. Not your grandma's cancer show.